0: In a world where film becomes reality, two hosts are dishing out the truth, blurring the lines between meaningful and mortifying. Prepare for the audio circus that is Drunkumentary. Cheers and welcome to Drunkumentary. I'm Nate. I'm Sam, and we're your hosts. Every episode of Drunkumentary, we'll discuss some of the most impactful, insane, and entertaining documentaries of our time. One of us will be sober, and the other of us will be drunk, going into detail of a new documentary each week. While
1: these tales may be sobering to some, we'll take the low road discussing incredible documentary films. We'll bring on guests, crack open a few... An attempt to explain the documentary to get their perspective on the story.
0: The documentary this week is Studio 54. This is where the royalty-free disco music comes in. <laughs> What, what city would you say probably has the, the worst nightclubs in the world? Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ooh, Tulsa. Dude, I guarantee you Tulsa has some crazy clubs. I guarantee it. Guarantee you. It's just straight Daisy. It's called the Daisy Dukes. And it's $5 for all guys. It's free for women before 12 o'clock. And <laughs> I'm telling you. that, that Drugs seem right to be now.
1: involved in every fun nightclub.
0: This was a disco tech, right? So, which whatever the fuck that means. I mean, let's just call it a disco, right? Where did the tech come in? It's a technical term to, to try to get people in. You know, for lack of better terms. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is a Best Buy as well as a place to dance. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm glad I'm glad we looked
0: this up in advance to this. I'm glad we came prepared to this. True clubs are kind of missing now, where people feel like. No inhibitions and do coke, awesome titties in the middle of the dance floor. Like that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately.
1: What's the craziest club? Would you say that you've ever been to?
0: I honestly think that that club we went to in Barcelona, Opium, was probably the most genuine club environment i've been to as far as you know everyone's dressed up there's there's a high production quality as far as the lighting and the music and there's a dj i mean a fucking saxophone player came out and just started ripping a saxophone solo so that was by far probably the most legitimate club i've been to of course you every once in a while you know like my first year in new york city i went to a new year's eve party that was, like, at a random-ass club in Manhattan, and it was packed, and you wait an hour at the bar for a drink. Like, those things are pretty standard. No, Opium fucking put the
1: VIP section in the middle of the dance floor. and my drunk-ass, tripped over the risers, bashed my shin? That's how it should be. VIP should be front and center. That leads to the question, who would be the one celebrity that you would want to hit the club
0: with? I'm gonna say... Macaulay Culkin. I'm saying Macaulay Culkin probably fucking rages, bro. What? Why was that your first choice, bro? All of these child actors fucking rage. I'm gonna say him. Wesley Snipes, just because. I'm gonna say Wesley Snipes, just because. You have to throw in if. if Dwayne the Rock Johnson is not in your top five. I have a lot of questions. I don't know if he drinks. He's so fucking fit, he might not even drink. But I want to go to a club with him, for the sheer fact that it's the Rock. So th- those are my top three, no particular order. After that, I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna go with a random UFC rink girl, just because. I think it just makes sense. Those girls are probably also running every single club you've ever been to. I think that just makes sense in a lot of different ways. And then last but not least, I'm going to go with 50 Cent just because of Disco Inferno. You know, It's going to be me in the VIP section with him. The DJ is going to pass him the mic. He's going to be singing Disco Inferno in the VIP section. It's going to be me right next to him. And And I'm sponsored by Vitamin Water, next thing you know.
1: You started off slow, but you finished strong. Wait, Macaulay Culkin's slow? (laughs) And Wesley Snipes. You only included one rapper. Fair enough, fair enough. Wesley Snipes is probably on... If you were going to pick a ballot and go NCAA style...
0: He's the 16th seed. He's the 16th seed. (laughs) He wouldn't even make the field to 64, dude. He evaded the IRS. You think that was for no fucking reason? He was obviously up to some crazy shit.
1: I'm throwing the flag on Dwayne The Rock Johnson because he's going to make you look like shit by comparison <laughs> standing next to him. I, I got to go with like the ugliest dudes. I need people around me that are going to make me look a little better while still being able to enjoy a full club experience.
0: Okay, so top five, no particular order.
1: I mean, I'll put Jonah Hill on that list. I'll put Tobey Maguire on that list.
0: Wait, so Macaulay Culkin, Culkin, you're saying is hot. Is that what you're trying to say? He's too good looking. He's he's too good looking to go to the club with.
1: What? No, Macaulay Culkin's too weird to go to the club with. Give me Tobey Maguire for the legendary stories that that dude has. Give me a club experience with Nick Cage. Giving me room for two rappers.
0: I'll take 2 Chains And I'll take... T-Pain. I don't know. I think that's... I I would say T-Pain's probably an introvert, bro. I don't know if that's a good pick. So I'm going to rag you on that one. You know T-Pain's wearing sunglasses the whole time in the club, too. Just like I am right now. Do you think you would get in looking like that? Steve Rebell literally said that he would let himself in with a Hawaiian shirt. I would consider this a Hawaiian shirt. So, yes. I think I'm getting in. Yes. And I'm also half black. I mean, I think, if anything, Steve Rebell specifically chose black people to get into the club. So yeah, I think I'm get fucking getting in. Do you think you'd be... We're going to do this like, like dodgeball,
1: right? We're going to do this like gym class. Do you think you'd be among the first picked, or are you a consolation pick just to fill the space?
0: Without a doubt, not a fucking first pick. No, in New York City, there's just too many good-looking people for me to possibly be a first pick. I think I'm getting in at 12.30. I got a few hours to, to rage. You know, maybe I can get in, like, three drinks within that time, just given how crazy the bar is. You think you're getting in? 50-50 shot. (laughs) I'm a a
1: wardrobe-dependent, borderline. Going back to the NCAA seeds, I'm 15 seed with a prayer to upset a two seed. No, they accidentally point to me. The guy has some sort of (laughs) shit in his eye. Points, I get randomly chosen. It's like the price is right. I run down my arms in the air,
0: and I go right in. And then you bid one dollar. You bid a dollar over. Have Have you ever been to uh, an 18 and over club? Because I feel like a lot of my club experience when I was younger, when I was into clubs, were like 18 and over clubs. Have you ever been to one?
1: No. But I have heard that they're popular on cruises, to which I've also not been on that either.
0: Yeah, I feel like 18 over clubs are just basically... You just bring someone who's over the age of 21 with you, and then they'll fucking pass you drinks. And then next thing you know, you're 19 years old, showing your balls on the dance floor of an 18-over 18, 18 club, basically. It's a special experience. The big question is, who over the age of 21 goes to 18-over clubs?
1: Yeah, it shouldn't be labeled 18 and over. There needs to be a limit on then over. Because
0: while it is legal, it is legal, it shouldn't be encouraged. 18 through 20 clubs. Honestly, yeah, that that, that makes a lot of sense. I would never fucking want to hang out with someone under the age of 21 right now, honestly. Like, while drunk, like right now, I would not. I just don't want to talk to someone of 21 right now. What is your, your cutoff point on either side? As far as dating or having a conversation? Friends. If they're extremely talented in their own right and interesting... And the same sex as me, so they're a guy. Then I'm cool with them being 16, but they'd have to be very talented. I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> then I would say, okay, like like 18, right? Because like if they're extremely talented guitarists, I'm like, yo, you're dope as fuck. When I was 18, I was smoking weed and doing fucking nothing. So props to you. Like we can be boys, but like I'm not gonna hang out with you every day. At the same time, Sam, I feel like you set me up for that question. So, so, <laughs> Sam, you fucking set me up for that question. Don't cast your shitty answer on me. Wait, so, give me all right. So, give me a spike answer. Give me a spike answer, Sam. What is a what is a reasonable age for you to be a, a friend of somebody with? Five years
1: on either side.
0: I guess that's reasonable. I'll, I'll bring my age limit up to to nineteen. How do you feel about the idea of a
1: place that allows for anything to happen inside without any discretion?
0: What Studio 54 did, although very brash, was necessary in a way, especially in a city like New York. Where there was all this openness to uh, homosexuality, to exploring and experimenting, I think that was a very necessary thing at the time, especially after um, the '60s and segregation and and everything. You know, it was a very open and and interesting time. So I think, I I think there's limits to it, but at the same time, I think that there should be there should be openness to these to these things you know and uh, i think there is but at the same time what studio 54 did at the time was extremely revolutionary
1: fuck yeah you should be able to do whatever you want this all comes at a price right this is a club that made it accessible to everyone there's no way that rich people aren't already paying for this kind of shit
0: the exclusivity portion to it is definitely something that is if anything, more prevalent today than it was back then, but I think probably was a big part of back then. I mean, the celebrity status of certain people like the Andy Warhols, like some of the celebrities that you would see at Studio 54 was peak celebrity status. And nowadays you see some of those to an even higher level. One drug to experience Studio 54 on got to go either cocaine or ecstasy like i would be ridiculous to say pcp right like i'm not going to be in studio 54 on pcp fucking my brain melting I'm, I'm running around screaming staring at nipples like just losing my mind it's, it's got to be cocaine or ecstasy easily
1: no you can bring your 18 year old friend and you guys can do fucking pcp together <laughs>
0: now, now you're making it weird sam now you're making it very weird well all right Let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to get another drink. All right.
1: Studio 54 was released in 2018 by A&E Indie Films. It was directed by Matt Turnhour... And can quickly be found by a search on Netflix. We open on a crowded, smoky Manhattan sidewalk. The air is pulsing with excitement and the gravity of the incoming night of Nirvana. The opening credits depict a disco, with intricate light shows dusting over an animated dance floor. Studio 54, a nightclub in a city that never sleeps, delivers an adrenaline kick from the combination Acceptance into this theater of thrills and the extreme doses of drugs from the elite dealers around New York City. Thousands of party hopefuls line the street outside 254 West 54th Street between Eighth Avenue and Broadway in midtown Manhattan. Ian Schrager, founder and creator of Studio 54, opens the film through interview.
2: I just go. Uh
0: yeah, try that.
2: Well, um you know i was i was wondering to myself why after almost 40 years you know i would finally feel okay to talk about studio because i hadn't talked about it you know at all now at a, a point in my life uh, that uh doesn't sting as much after all this time the way it, it, it used to sting there's only two people that could have told this story steve and i that's why I'm happy to finally tell the story as it really happened.
0: Ian has the perfect accent between a Brooklyn accent and a true cigarette smoker accent. Yeah, when we first opened Studio 54, it was back when me and Steve were in Brooklyn. <laughs> I've been practicing a lot. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been watching it a lot, I've been practicing a lot. Well, that was time well served.
1: You gave this podcast real credibility and how true to his accent you really went. Thank you, Sam. The next scene depicts Schrager sitting down with editors, flipping through old photos from nights within the club. There are pictures that capture some of the largest celebrities at the time. Names like Andy Warhol, Mick Jagger, Liza Minnelli, and Muhammad Ali.
2: I've never been in a room. Put so many celebrities, it was like numb.
1: Steve was described as a social butterfly while studying at Syracuse University, all the while not revealing his inner homosexuality. After graduating college, Schrager becomes a practicing lawyer while Rubel tries a new venture.
2: After he graduated, I got a job as a lawyer and then Steve was working on the steak restaurants. He had expanded too quickly, and and, and they weren't doing well.
0: His first steak restaurant was actually called the Steak Loft. His next steak restaurants were called the Steak Undersized Three-Bedroom Apartment, as well as the Steak Living in Your Parents' Basement. (laughs) Okay, I gotta fuck that up.
1: (laughs) Steve does not find success through steak, and it's with Ian's sense of opportunity through nightclubs that they begin to focus their planning towards this new venture. Schrager and Rubell go out to nightclubs around Manhattan. They try to combine the best elements of each into their own operation. Niall Rogers describes the concept as revolutionary. Each culture began accepting others, which Ian attributes to the anything-goes-behind-closed-doors policy of the nightclubs of the time. Ian claims the duo were looking to tap into the loose, intense, sweaty, dancing fun that was happening in these clubs. At the time schrager and rubel signed the lease in an area known as the theater district new york city was in a state of stagnation
2: the mayor beam said he's going to clean up the streets we're still waiting it's very dirty i'm living here many years when i remember when it was beautiful and now it stinks
1: the building opened in 1927 as the Gallo opera house and was an entertainment venue until cbs began using the space as a production studio in 1942. Studio 54 today is a commercial venue space and Ian tours the current version of the building and reminisces with Michael Overington. After leasing the space, the partners build the entire club floor in six weeks. They use theater lighting and production companies to equip the nightclub, even paying lighting staff to remain on hand during weekend events. The club aesthetic can be described as old money glam, a sarcastic take on aristocratic nights of debauchery from times written in textbooks. Schrager and Rebel start checking boxes on their to-do list from the beginning, getting creative and addressing issues such as obtaining a liquor license
0: to operate properly. And Ian, at this point in the documentary literally says, back then it was impossible to get a liquor license. Matter of fact, We just forgot about it.
1: They settle on the idea of using one-night catering permits to legally serve alcohol while operating. Opening night is pandemonium, with the amount of guests funneling onto the dance floor, second only to the amount of cocaine funneled into the nose of dancers.
0: Guests would be walking into this old theater the walls are knocking from the base and asbestos is literally dropping down from the ceiling from this old ass theater and all you hear is won't you take me to Funk It Town? <laughs> I take to Funk It take me to Funk It Town, want to take me to town. <laughs> As they're walking in and it's just insane, like it's unheard of at the time. That a club would be in a venue like this and it's just perfectly set up for the space, for the atmosphere, for the fucking funk. How long were you practicing that song? I didn't practice it. Honestly, I didn't practice it. I did write it down. I'm not going to lie. I did write that part (laughs) down. (laughs) Their
1: club was a monster hit from the beginning, with the owners routinely evaluating the anxious crowd to handpick guests for each night. Couples and gays were often favored for their laid-back attitudes. Harry King equates going out in those times to an ego check, with Studio 54 being the ultimate ego thermometer. The guest list would be at the front door. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones were comped, while the remaining members of the band had to pay their tolls to enter. Steve was ruthless in evaluating guests, often splitting up couples as they arrived. Rules and requirements to get in were kept a public secret. Money spilled into the club, creating a cash influx that all in attendance would take note of. Through interview, it was described as a fantasy world, where the owners were losing touch with reality due to their sudden and meteoric rise in success. It was during this rise that the liquor board finally cracked down on the one-night catering permits, arresting the two owners for their...
0: Illegal sales of liquor. I think it's important to note that Roy Cohen, who of course is the lawyer for Studio 54 and Stephen Ian at the time, was also the subject of a specific documentary for Matt Turnauer, the director of this documentary. And so that just goes to show the legacy of Roy Cohen in general, who was an attorney for Big Mobsters in Manhattan, which makes a lot of sense because. Ian and Steve were just two random Brooklyn dudes. You can't just open a club in the middle of Manhattan without connecting with any big-time criminal organizations in general, right? I mean, you think clubs are big moneymakers for these criminal organizations. You can't just fucking open up a club as two random guys and just start selling alcohol to sexy women and dudes who will pay you money, right? I mean... So so it makes a lot of sense at this point.
1: You would sell it to the 18-year-old kid.
0: (laughs) You're an asshole. If they're talented, they have to be talented.
1: (laughs) After a successful liquor license petition, the club is then raided amongst allegations of skimming from the owners. Ian Schrager insists that he opens the door of the club at 9 a.m. this day to FBI agents securing records around the building. He drops his bags, which are promptly searched,
2: I came in, I had all my papers with me like I normally have. I put them down on the floor. This is nine o'clock in the morning, by the way. Then I walked in. Ian Schrager, one of the owners of Studio 54, entered the club sometime later. An agents say that among his records, they found cocaine. So I'm a little torn by
0: this whole situation because of course that whole entire sidewalk in front of Studio 54 is probably loaded with just bags of cocaine. Like you probably can't step anywhere without stepping on a bag of cocaine at that time. But of course, there's cocaine there. Why? Why is anyone surprised?
1: Rebel remains stoic in front of the cameras when interviewed just after the raid, almost with a look of excitement that all the attention is finally on him and his club. Schrager claims that even more guests arrived to the party after the raid, which he said was fueled by the infamy and notoriety from the news. The FBI claims that an informant brought about the official complaint. And this informant leads authorities to a drop ceiling in the basement of Studio 54, which held some amount of
0: money. And at this point in the documentary, there's a Studio 54 manager who's interviewed who claims that they just held a bunch of quarters in the ceiling, in the drop ceiling in this case, because the safe required five numbers to unlock. And it was a pain in the ass to unlock doesn't fucking make sense that was a shitty excuse and probably should have been included in the documentary
1: this was one of the many examples of how they try to create some sort of mythology around how irresponsible they really were during the operation of this this club i don't know if you notice anything like this too but throughout the film i thought they kind of went above and beyond emphasizing and exaggerating just how insane their business operations were Completely insane. Yeah. Schrager says at one time he was carrying 400K in cash in the trunk of his car. The books of the club were kept by Steve Rebell's mother, who was said to have kept meticulous records of all the money coming into the club. Supposedly, there was a fake book kept in the club that hid anywhere from 2 to $3 million in funds that were alleged to have been skimmed from the intake. Jack, who was shown and depicted as the silent partner of Studio 54, pleaded guilty to charges of tax evasion. The, the, this was an overwhelming success. So I wasn't about to try to harness them. And, you know, you know, we all paid the price. I
0: mean, but did you know what was going on in the counting
1: house? Oh, I was right in the middle of it. Uh, Yeah, I was right in the middle of it. I was just as culpable as, you know, Steve and Ian. The next scene shows Agent Peter Sudler describing how he was assigned to an organized crime task force that focuses on the Italian mafia in New York. He tells the story of Ian Schrager's father, nicknamed Max the
0: Jew, who was infamous for his illegal operations in loan sharking, and let the record show that Ian Schrager's father's name was Louis Schrager, which makes the nickname Max the Jew sound a little weird. It's like, okay, wait, his name's not even Max. It's not Maxwell. Is he even fucking Jewish at this point? Like, how did how did this man get this nickname?
1: The dude would just steal your Air Maxes. <laughs> Studio 54 is under the weight of the law, having all practices examined under a microscope. News breaks on August 28th, 1979. The Justice Department is investigating an allegation that White House Chief of Staff Hamilton Jordan used cocaine during a visit to
2: New York Studio 54 discotheque last year.
0: Essentially, the government asked Steve, they were like, hey, who can you give us up that would help us give you a lighter sentence? And us convict that person. So then Steve's like, Uh, how about Andy Warhol? And the government's like, No, we don't care about Andy Warhol. Uh, how about Burt Reynolds? No, we don't give a fuck about Burt Reynolds either. And Steve's just like, finally like, Well, who do you want? The cops are like, Well, the president, senator, chief of staff, I don't know, anyone big time. So Steve's just like, yeah, yeah, the the, ch- the chief of staff. Yeah, I sold the chief of staff some cocaine. Yeah, it was no problem. Yeah, he was in club club uh, studio fifty four. No problem. And so that's just essentially seems like how it came about. It was not a lot of details behind it.
1: President Carter comments about the incident, explaining that he will see to it that the truth comes out. You saw with your own eyes Hamilton Jordan used cocaine. Yes. No question. No. Question. No mistake. No. The owners look to renovate the club to provide a metaphorical cleansing to the space. The new aesthetic, costing around $1.5 million to create, features a new bridge that allows guests to travel to different spaces within the club. They also cover the balcony in rubber, thus creating a literal sex pit that the designers knew would make for easy cleanup.
0: In the documentary, the architect for Studio 54 was literally asked if he knew they were making a giant, gist proof fuck spot. Were you aware that you were creating a sex pit? Get the yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that
1: was good. The owners of Studio 54 end up pleading guilty to charges of defrauding the government in the area of $2.5 million in unreported tax revenue. The press coverage of the club turns sour, raining down judgment on a place known for seclusion and the release of inhibitions, signaling the beginning of the end. Schrager claims that Steve and himself became closer through the experience. They are ultimately sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Studio 54 throws a party the night before the
0: duo go to jail. How fucking badass is it to have all these celebrities come and send you off to jail, essentially, knowing that when you get out, we're going to party twice as hard? The
1: owners decide that now is the best time to sell the club, and they negotiate the contract while in jail for a deal around $5 million. Disco as a music genre begins to fade away from popularity, now becoming a running joke in the lexicon of society. The pair comes out of prison in 1981, to what Schrager describes as, quote, a whole new world. Ian explains he felt like he lost everything in his life, becoming disenfranchised from the system and needing to start over in the world. Steve lost friends over his perceived ratting on guests of his club, breaking trusts that were assumed among other lustful secrets. The duo began to buy hotels and they start a new club, Palladium. In 1985. Studio 54 closes in 1989. It is around this time that it is discovered Steve has
2: AIDS. He had some symptoms, not of HIV, but they were vague symptoms. And I was the one that told him he had AIDS, yeah. You have to remember AIDS at that time it wasn't a disease. It was a condemnation. Everybody was getting sick. It was frightening. And if I'm still emotionally affected by it, the loss was profound.
1: The film takes a somber tone when it is revealed that Steve Rubell passes away on July 25th, 1989, from complications from AIDS at the age of 45. Steve's death affects many, with his sheet group of party friends in attendance for one last gathering at his funeral. The partner shared an incredible bond, possessing a rare quality, not many friendships experience. Schrager goes on to have massive success in the hospitality space, inspired by the work that he and Steve did within Studio 54. The club represented an era for many in this time, culturally crucial, in the nightlife of New York City and in the history of the 1970s. President Barack Obama officially pardons the pair in 2017, proclaiming that Studio 54 was unprecedented in history. The film ends on a somber yet reminiscent tone, depicting photos from the club and leaving the viewer with a sense of nostalgia.
2: Studio has meant everything to us. Well, we had gone through together, both of us ingrained with that desire to be successful. I didn't get it as a lawyer, and he didn't get it as a steak restaurateur, but we both got it together with Studio. I don't think they had any idea what it would become, that it would become this world famous, that it would be important in our culture and the history of New York City it may be significant in the history of what was going on all around the world.
1: The documentary paints a picture of a startup nightclub that becomes much more than even the ambitious owners could imagine. The production jumps from fun and often sexual energy to cautionary examples of what would go wrong when the party bubbles over into all facets of the business and their own lives. While the owners ran a successful business in which they misappropriated funds, their true crime was allowing for Studio 54 to define one's ego and creating resent among common men and celebrities alike. The attention beating down like a hi hat light on a coked out ballerina in the midst of an all out bender brings about consequences that are amplified to unexpected proportions. The film is a roller coaster filled with amazing visuals and incredible stories that provide true context into the nature of what 1970s disco was built on. The film,
0: to me, gets six and a half out of ten qualudes. I probably give it closer to uh, seven, seven and a half. Just from the sheer amount of fun that you get out of this documentary. I mean, it is a documentary that you can watch with anybody. Significant others, friends, on a Friday night, on a weekday. It's a documentary that you can watch and have fun watching. The soundtrack's amazing. I mean, literally, I caught myself... having drinks earlier today and just dancing to some of the disco soundtracks that they had during the documentary and the mysticism of it all really brings together this aura of what the disco scene and the club scene was like in the seventies. So I, I give it a solid seven, seven and a half. And I thought the director did a very good job of talking about and touching on some of the important parts as far as the AIDS epidemic and HIV epidemic of the time and how it affected, of course, former members and participants and influencers of the club. At the same time, I think, of course, it is important to know that there's only so much drama that can be around a club that was there for 33 months in total. I mean that's it. Studio Fifty Four was open for thirty three months, and not any more, not any less. So at the same time, how much of a story can you build around that? But I thought that, given that amount of time, given the story, the producers and directors did a fantastic job. So I give it a seven, seven and a half.
1: I enjoyed this one, and this was light. You know, there was some turmoil. There was death. There was tragedy. But, I mean, I, I actually I, you know, I fucking enjoyed this. I can't say that this was a pain to get through. Um, you're not going to learn. I don't think you're going to learn too much coming out of this. But I think you're going to appreciate the nostalgia point that the film was looking to depict. I, I, it just made me want to fucking do
0: coke and dance to disco. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, the the music, the outfits, the titties, the sweaty titties, the amount of titties that you see in this documentary fantastic and it really puts together what the 70s were all about which is freedom escapism having a fucking good time and just not caring having no inhibitions which is something that i'm looking forward to you know after this pandemic i'm hoping we have another resurgence of the roaring 20s which i know this documentary doesn't take place in but fuck if i don't want to be up in a club with some sweaty titties after this pandemic. So I enjoy this documentary a ton. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drunkumentary. Make sure to send any questions or ideas to us at drunkenmentorypodcast at gmail.com.
1: Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at DruncumentaryPodcast.
2: That's it.